Rebecca Cook is one of our drama team's writers, especially Friday night children's stories of the monkeys Milo and Maisie. Becca's mum, Isabel Cook, lives in Huntingdon and is one of our most prolific contributors of stories and poems. Becca was invited to be part of the Commonwealth Games 2022 in Birmingham, and this is her story. Following a successful audition, I was given the amazing opportunity to be a volunteer performer in the 2022 Commonwealth Games, hosted in Birmingham. Artistic director Iqbal Khan had a vision to capture the heritage, culture and diversity of Birmingham in a story which was written by Maeve Clark. Discovering the part I would play set in the dark side of the Industrial Revolution was an exciting moment. I became one of 50 to be known as the Bull Chain Women. As this role unfolded, it became clear we had a very powerful tale to tell which would resonate with women around the world and send the important message of forgiveness and hope to all. In the early 19th century, urbanisation had formed industrial towns like Cradley Heath in the Black Country, where thick black smoke filled the air. This town became the centre for chain making in Britain. The smaller chains were hand worked, often known as hand hammered, by women and children as young as 13 years of age in small, dark and cramped forges in outbuildings next to their homes. They sweated from the hot conditions and physically demanding work from 7am until 8pm. These women were known as the white slaves of England, poorly paid for five shillings, that is just 25 pence per week. They found themselves struggling in poverty. The women chainmakers' appalling working conditions could correspond with our understanding of modern day slavery, which is exploitation, cohesion, manipulation and an abuse of power by employees. A campaign to end this exploitation gained support and the government passed the Trades Board Act to establish and enforce minimum rates of pay. However, employees refused to pay the increase. Mary MacArthur was the founder of the National Federation of Women Workers. In 1910, following seeing the appalling treatment of the women chainmakers and refusal from employers to pay, she called a strike in August 1910, which lasted 10 weeks. Mary rallied 1,000 chainmakers together to stand up for fair minimum wage and better working conditions. Stronger together, Mary used mass meetings and the new media of cinema to reach a wider global audience. Within one month, 60% of employers signed the whitelist and agreed to pay minimum wage. Following the Chainmakers victory, this dispute finished on the 22nd of October 1910. In parallel, the Bulls' revelance to Birmingham and their appalling treatment accompanied our tale. In the 16th century, John Cooper was given the right to bait bulls for sport prior to their slaughter by the market and butcher shambles, which became known as the Bull Ring. It is now a major shopping area in Birmingham and the Birmingham Bull is the city's iconic symbol. In the opening ceremony, you can visibly see the chainmakers and the bull flight, both bound by chains of slavery. On entering the stadium, the audience became silent. We'd certainly gained everyone's attention. Once the chains broke for the first time, the bull and we were all free. Angered by this injustice of slavery, we got behind the bull ready to fight. However, upon seeing Stella and the Dreamers, we realised fighting was not right. Choosing forgiveness, we tried to calm the bull. We performed a powerful forgiveness dance, shedding our own restraints and feelings. 
I was later informed the emotion created by this dance had some audience members in tears. The LED track around us displayed tributes to chainmakers, including Mrs. Patience Round, who at the age of 79 years and still a chainmaker joined this strike in 1910. She had worked for 67 years whilst caring for her disabled husband and raising their children. Her daughter, Miss Alice Tibbetts, also became a chainmaker. It was an amazing feeling when we heard the audience applause and a privilege to tell the chainmakers of Cradley his story. Feedback we have received from family, friends and people we met on the journey back from the Alexander Stadium was overwhelmingly positive. It's been such an incredible journey and have met so many wonderful people who have now become lifetime friends. I wish to emphasise so many people worked on this to make it happen. A huge heartfelt thank you to all the people behind the scenes. It took 50 people to make the ball and so many volunteers such as wardrobe and makeup artists so we could bring the Chainmakers story to the global stage. The atmosphere in Birmingham has been amazing. Wherever I look, there are crowds of smiling faces. Everyone has united coming together to celebrate the unique Commonwealth Games, which this year had more medals for women, the largest integrated sports and para sports programme, and a huge effort has been made to make it more environmentally friendly. Finally, in true Birmingham style, 14,000 volunteers gave their time and skills to make the Commonwealth Games a memorable experience for all. It is certainly an event which I will never forget. The Burmese Haze was written and is narrated by Colette Parker. Do enjoy. The sunlight begins to filter through the shuttered window, casting strips of darkened shadow across the pale wall, pockmarked with mould, splashes ancient and new, and in various shades of black. A metal cross on one bare wall is caught in the rays of the sun, sending shafts of golden light at diagonals to each corner of this quiet cell. Quiet, save for the never-ending tick-tick-ticking of the crickets outside, and in the distance, on the other side of the courtyard, the soft hum of women's voices in a holy chant. It was this ethereal sound that seems to ride in on the back of the already hot early morning sunshine that disturbs little William from his sleep. He lifts his head with its soft red curls gingerly from the pillow on which he has spent a restless night. So many worries for one so young. Willie, as he was to become affectionately known by the nuns who would care for him, feels the unnatural prickle of the stiff and starchy sheet against his soft skin. He blinks several times and screws up his face with its blend of creamy skin and light fawn-coloured freckles. As he tries to take in this strange new room that has been his shelter, for last night at least. There is one familiar sight, however, the dark head of his sister Kitty just peeping above the sheet that drapes around her tiny body. He can tell from her stillness and the steady rise and fall of her shoulders she is still in the midst of a deep sleep. The surroundings are somewhat different to the children's usual bedtime habitat. A straw mat gracing the floors of a hut on stilts in a nearby local village. Here they will be found curled around the body of their mother, Mahala, who made her living by rolling tobacco leaves into cigars. 
As William watched his sister's slumbers, he wondered how his mother was coping without them on this first of many nights they were to experience apart. In fact, there were to be very few ever again in which the brother and sister would spend a night with their mother under the same roof, straw or otherwise. William and Kitty had been picked up from the dusty streets of Rangoon the day before by two nuns and taken to the Little Sisters of the Poor convent, where moments ago William had awoken. Sister Agnes had noticed them on a number of occasions and had become increasingly concerned for their welfare. Until recently, the children and their mother had shared the quarters of their father, Thomas Nichols, the second son of a tobacco manufacturer based in Chester, England. Thomas had already returned once from a visit back to his home country, and when he was recalled by his family journey home from Burma across the seas a second time in the year of 1886, Malhala had no reason to believe he would not come back to them. After he left, the months passed with no word. Mahala and the children had to leave the bungalow home they shared with him. Kitty would not see her father for another 35 years. William would never agree to meet him again. He could not have known at the time that his father had made provision for them. With a myriad of thoughts going through his mind, pangs of hunger suddenly begin to strike, and it occurs to William that it must be well past his breakfast time. Just as he begins to wonder whether they would be given the delicious cold curry which he loves so much at home, he becomes aware of a commotion going on outside the shuttered window. Amongst the cacophony, he recognises a voice, that of his mother speaking rather loudly. Where have you put my children? Why have you taken them? she cries. Her fearless young son jumps out of the wooden crate which had been his bed and runs to the window where he pulls back the shutters to be immediately faced by the side of his mother's head. She is remonstrating with the sister. Their mother does no more than jump inside over the window ledge as soon as she sees him. Not to be left behind, sister follows suit, her white long habit proving no encumbrance to the athletic feet which sees both nun and the young mother end up in an undignified heap on the floor. The extraordinary act of hurdling results in disturbing Kitty from her dreams. She is distinctly alarmed by the vision that confronts her and so starts to wail. Mother comforts daughter and the situation, to William's relief, calms down. Gaining her breath back, sister says as she sweeps the dust from her habit, my dear, please understand that we fear for your children's future. Here we can look after them safely. We can feed them, clothe them, and they will be educated. William by the brothers of the Christian schools, and Kitty will attend lessons given by the sisters of the Good Shepherd. Mahala, pleased to have made contact with her children, is eventually appeased. The world of the nuns is alien to her. Although she appreciates their intention is to help and protect her children, as she could not. The young brother and sister are given clean clothes and taken to a small dormitory where they discover others 
just like themselves. The Café Olay, a label they became increasingly familiar with as it was commonly applied to them. They were now among 800 children in one of 21 orphanages under the care of the sisters and brothers. And so Mahala leaves, with a promise that she can return to see them, but only on Sunday afternoons. End of the Line was written by Graham Emmett and is recited by Kevin Daly. Oily rags, kindling, shoveling coal, lighting the rags, watching it burn, lighting the kindling, shoveling coal through the small hatch closing, waiting for it to glow like a red-hot fiery inferno. Tapping the gauges, watching the needles climb slowly, open the hatch, shovel like mad, now we're ready, full steam ahead. The wheels they are spinning, sparks are flying, clouds of steam smoke rising, now we are moving. Peterborough, Darlington, York, pass in a kaleidoscope blur, not stopping until the border. We are covered in grime, black hands and faces, the day is done, no more steam, we have been replaced by diesel and electric now. Not Such Bright Young Things Written by Sonia Carter and narrated by Roger Ems The 1920s were the days of cloche hats, bosomless dresses and cars for wealthy owners. Freedom from stuffy Victorian and Edwardian clothes and the buzz of speedy personal travel. The ambition of bright young things, bohemian aristocrats with easy money in pursuit of excitement, was to be invited to weekend house parties arriving in a cloud of dust driving their fashionable automobiles. One such young man had been invited to a country house which he'd not previously visited but which promised interesting company and the chance to show off his car. Well, this was some 40 years before mass-produced cheaper vehicles with the gradual development of in-car sat-nav thereafter. The directions were straightforward until he passed through the last village on his route. He had then been told that in a mile or so he would see a road on the right which would lead down to his destination, a country mansion. Carefully following instructions, he arrived at the turning, but all he could find was a narrow lane which led away into the distance beyond his vision. Peering through binoculars, he espied no sign of turrets or balustrades to entice him to negotiate this minor access way. It neither answered the description he'd been given, nor seemed to be used very often. Grass was growing down the centre of the apparent cart track and it seemed most unlikely it was the driveway to a mansion. If it were, it would prove a most disappointing approach. There was no one about to ask, 
and he was wondering what on earth to do as he was already late when he saw a movement far down the alleyway. A man was down there leaning over a field gate. Although the lane was too narrow to turn around in, the tourist decided that he really had little choice other than to drive down to ask this individual if he knew the way. The person turned out to be an old countryman puffing away on his pipe and gazing out over the fields. Uh, excuse me, said the young driver, can you tell me if Blandgate Hall is down here? The old man took his pipe out of his mouth and said, nope, and clamped his teeth back onto his pipe. Um, I was told it was near here. Well, said the pedestrian, I'm not from hereabouts. I'm waiting for me mate. He was born here, so he should know. They waited and waited in silence. The older man seemed to have no interest in the traveller, who for some reason felt intimidated and unable to make small talk, even to ask the likely time of the mate's arrival. He'd gained the impression that he was not worthy of the attention of this countryman. After what seemed like hours to the impatient townsman, but was probably only ten minutes, the old yokel took his pipe out of his mouth. Oh, look, sir, he exclaimed. The younger man jumped up in his driver's seat, expecting to see another man approaching, but there was no one in sight. The older man went on. Look at what they birds be doing. It do mean it's going to rain. At this, the young man was so exasperated that he sat back down and started up the engine. It was useless to wait any longer, he reasoned, and began to reverse along the track out to the road. The Bentley three-litre open-top tourer was a pearl to manoeuvre, but he still strained his neck, keeping to the track which was bordered by a ditch on one side and a slope down to a hedge on the other. The so-called mate may never materialise, and he could be sat there for ages waiting to find the way to his destination. He would make it to the party eventually, no doubt, but would he be in time to impress other guests with his car's powerful acceleration demonstrated by a flurry of dust upon arrival? The sporting open tourer was well in advance of its rivals, offering continent-crossing speed and stamina. It would remain the mainstay of the Bentley Rage in production volumes until 1927. Exhausted, exasperated and with a crick in his neck, the visitor finally backed out onto the main road. As he turned the car to drive away, he glanced down the lane. There were now two men standing there and the first he had seen was beckoning to him to return. Thinking that the hall must be down that way after all, he drove down again. The two country bumpkins smiled at him. My mate's come now, sir said the first. The visitor waited with bated breath for directions. But he don't know neither. The Cellar was written by Isabel Cook and is narrated by Colette Parker. Do enjoy.
Harriet awoke. The candle that flickered shadows onto the walls was almost down to its last wax. She lit the tall cream candle that stood by the side of the dying flame and immediately the room felt warmer and brighter. The wind rattled the shutters and a tree branch scratched at the window pane. The sound was frightening and made Harriet imagine all kinds of horrors. The electricity had failed for the third time in a week. Workmen were busy trying to trace the fault. There was a problem. As soon as they thought they had mended it, another fault occurred. It was as if someone was deliberately sabotaging the lines that fed the village and especially the one to Harriet's house. Harriet was wide awake. She poured herself a cup of hot chocolate that she had prepared in a flask before she came to bed. She could not settle. Noises came from the window and they seemed to come from downstairs as well. The wind was playing havoc with the old shutters. Harriet needed the bathroom. She put on a warm dressing gown and sheepskin slippers, but she still felt cold. As she came out of the bathroom, she thought she saw a light of a candle flickering down the stairs and into the dark foreboding space that was the hallway. There was the light and it cast shadows and as Harriet watched, they moved. Someone was downstairs. Harriet knew that she had been alone in the house. She stifled a scream. Her mobile was almost out of juice, but she managed to dial 999. Soon, a police car was pulling up outside the house. Harriet heard the knocking, but was petrified to descend the stairs. She summoned up courage and ran down the stairs and flung open the front door. Two policemen stood in the doorway and asked Harriet if she was all right. She told them what she had seen. They looked over the house. Two smoking candles were in the kitchen and the wax was still warm. Harriet told the policeman that she had left no lighted candle in the kitchen. She had been mindful of the fire risks. The fact that the candles were warm sent a shiver down Harriet's back. She was adamant that someone must have been in the kitchen and she had blown those candles out four hours ago. The policeman searched everywhere and checked all the outside doors were locked. Harriet asked them if they had looked in the cellar. The policeman had not and Anton, the larger of the policemen, took one of the torches they always carried and went down the stone steps into the darkness. Peter called to him and Anton replied. Then suddenly, Anton was silent. Peter called and called, but no response came from the dark cellar. Peter assumed that Anton had fallen and was in need of assistance. He shrugged his shoulders and went down into the cellar. 
with his torch. Harriet waited at the top, looking down as the light from the torch was lost in the darkness. She called, but there was no response. Harriet was really scared now. There was just enough battery on her mobile to phone for help. Two more police cars turned up and a search was made of the cellar. But no trace of Anton and Peter was found. In fact, no trace of them was ever found. Harriet only set foot in the property again once to collect her belongings. She went to stay with a cousin and put the house up for sale. A group of ghost hunters bought the property, then two of them disappeared in the same way as the police officers going into the cellar. An extensive excavation was made of the cellar. The brickwork was really old. Using modern technology, four bodies were detected in the walls. The bodies of Anton, Peter, Marilyn Hewitt and Trevor Smith, the two ghost hunters, were all retrieved. They had been walled up alive but the brickwork was old and had not been tampered with. No one visits the house now and it has been left to deteriorate. The villagers say that strange lights are seen coming from it. The case remains an unsolved mystery and the police are baffled. The Letter was written and is narrated by Helen O'Mahony. Jack read the crumpled letter once more with trembling hands still unable to absorb the words. His gaze returned often to the views from the train window, but he found no solace there. So she was gone. If only he hadn't been so headstrong about his need to travel and work overseas back then, they might have stayed together and had a beautiful life. Of course he had asked her to come with him, but she told him that she couldn't go with him and that she no longer wanted to see him. She had been so firm, yet there was pain in her eyes. He didn't understand why. It had left a deep scar inside him. Now it was too late. What was there for him now except to visit her final resting place in some lonely graveyard? He had brought white roses to place on her grave. The letter had arrived a week ago from Alice's only son, John. He pondered what this encounter would bring. Would Alice's son look like her with her clear blue eyes? Perhaps he would be resentful of their love affair. Jack tried to prepare himself for whatever welcome he would find. All too soon the train began to slow. He folded the letter carefully and prepared to descend from the train onto the quiet platform. At the other end of the platform he could see a lone figure, a tall slim man with brown hair also carrying flowers. Jack waited, holding his breath. 
how would this go? As the younger man approached, Jack could see that he appeared upset. Suddenly they were face to face, and he could see the red-rimmed eyes and damp face of Alice's son. I'm so sorry about your mother, Jack began to say. The younger man cut across him with a choked voice. Dad, he sobbed, and gripped Jack's hand tightly. The wet eyes looking at Jack were indeed blue like Alice's, but the face was like a younger version of himself. Everything seemed to blur around him. He placed a hand on the young man's shoulder. Are you saying that you are my... Yes, yes, insisted the young man, tears glistening on his face. She always called me Jack, after you. She loved you, right to the very end. Jack felt confused. But why didn't she tell me? I would have looked after both of you. Because she loved you so much. She knew how much you wanted to travel. You had so many dreams, she couldn't stand in your way. But I asked her to come with me, he said. But she said no. Well, before you were due to leave for Australia, she found that she was pregnant with me. She didn't want to ruin your chances of a good career, or for you to feel burdened with us. Jack closed his eyes and shaking his head slowly, saw all the wasted years when they could have been together. I would have stayed and married your mother. She was so precious to me. When he opened his eyes, John was standing looking earnestly at him, a question on his lips. Dad, do you think we can remember her together? Jack looked at the handsome young man, realising what a wonderful gift Alice had given him. In a moment, the two men had clasped in a tearful embrace, the grey head and the brown head touching, a father and his son. The Sayers returned to haunt Blundersham Rectory and was written and is narrated by Jean Fairburn. This poem was written tongue-in-cheek for a community arts festival celebrating the creative spirit of Dorothy L. Sayers in September 2017. Dorothy, a writer of detective stories, famously created Lord Peter Whimsey and taking the spirit aspect literally, Dorothy, her father and Lord Whimsey are spotted by the locals as they return to haunt the rectory and its gardens. The Sayers, the gossips say, have returned to haunt the rectory and no one knows why except for Dorothy. The Reverend Sayers was spotted at first kneeling in leaves and vegetable dirt, training pea runners to swoop, stoop and loop, straggling tendrils around circular hoops and thirsting, bursting, swollen pea pods, so ripe for picking, exploding they drop off, cascading to earth in a vegetable waterfall, showering the ground with tiny green cannonballs. Next the Reverend was spotted approaching the greenhouse, to attend the bean runners starting to sprout, which tied to railings and long-handled rakes, were fixed to bamboo canes with thin wooden stakes, making a framework for high-climbing shoots, which pulled up tightly were stretched to the roots. Harvest produce was left at the church door to be nibbled by mice teeth, scored, 
and clawed, but not the reverence, nothing there gnawed and poured. No, stored in his greenhouse, a temple of glass, his sunripe tomatoes cannot be surpassed. Dorothy sat talking to her mother in the kitchen while creating a canvas of violet and vermilion and penning a note to a man named Sweet William. But tittle-tattling and taking tea and toast on the terrace, Dorothy was seen with that detective, Lord Peter Whimsey, a character she created by herself and for herself to make sure of her own happy ending. The Shout Written and narrated by Evie Coppard. The only possible escape from the blaze behind the young boy is the ladder. It spans the distance between the window of the building opposite and the one on which he is trapped, five floors up. He cannot jump. He cannot go back. He stares at the fireman leaning out of the opposite window. But the thought of stepping onto the ladder freezes his heart and paralyzes his limbs. The fireman, eyes bright and cheeks flushed, has already leaned out as far as he dares towards the boy. He has not been trained for this outdated rescue attempt, but there is no time to wait for his on-call colleagues with all the right equipment and backup. So he fights down his own panic and tries to keep his voice gentle, encouraging. Come on, lad. You're a big boy now. You can do it. Where's Mummy? Mummy's over here waiting for you, lies the fireman. Come on. I can't. Come get me, please. I wish I could, but I'm too big and heavy. You can do it easily, a clever boy like you. The boy flings a quick glance behind him. He can see the flames now. Merciless yellow demons licking round the door, dancing towards him. The noise had come first, a terrifying wailing sound that woke him and made him sit up. He had heard it before, but he didn't know what it was at first. The fire alarm. Mummy and Daddy had shown it to him in the hall outside his bedroom. Sometimes they press the green button to test it, and it makes that noise. If you hear this when you're in bed, it means there's a fire somewhere. Stay where you are, and we will come and get you. So he crawled under his bed and waited. But nobody came, only the smoke, snaking across the floor towards him, curling around his bed. There were lots of crackling noises outside his door. He could hardly see or even breathe. But he knew the flames were coming, and so he climbed out of the window to jump. But it's too far down. A crash behind him makes the boy scream, but still he cannot move. The fireman knows that the ladder, in its precarious position on two narrow ledges, will not support his weight. He is not at all certain that it will hold the boys, but it's the only chance he has. The fireman knows too that he and the child are in the last few moments left between the chance of life and certain death. He tries another approach. Look here, boy. This is no time to get awkward. Do as I say. With a sob, the boy lowers himself onto the ladder. Good lad, that's it. Now, slowly, slowly mind, don't rush. Crawl towards me. Look at me. No, not the ground. Look at me, I said. The fireman hears the shrill edge in his voice and breathes deep. There must be no panic, no mistakes. I can't see properly. My hands hurt. The boy's voice is bleak, but strangely calm. He is simply stating the facts. He knows and accepts that he is going to fall. 
Experience has taught the fireman the danger of the moment when the hope of rescue dies. He bites down the anguished moan that rises in his throat and says, Look, lad, I know you're scared, but in just a few moments, you'll be over here with me, safe and sound. You can do it. I know you can. Slowly, carefully, wincing as his burned hands touch the cold steel frame, the boy moves. He tries very hard not to look at the scurrying, shuddering beetle people below him as he inches across the ladder. Several times his hand slips and he thinks he's falling. He cries openly. He can't help it, even though he knows that big boys don't cry and tears will make it even harder to see where he is going. He wants to jump. Oh, he so badly wants to fling himself off this ladder and get it over with. But the familiar voice, now coaxing, now goading, draws him on. He can't hear the noise of the fire anymore, nor the sounds from the ground. He doesn't even hear the distant sounds of sirens from racing emergency vehicles. He hears only the voice telling him he can do it, that he is brave and strong and nearly there. Before he could possibly reach the boy, the fireman stretches out his arms, desperately trying to straddle the space left between him and the child. The whole world, it seems, holds its breath as the two of them fill the scene. All the sounds around them, the voices below, the sounds of the flames eating up the boy's bed, his toys, his curtains, a woman screaming, and the sirens getting closer and closer. All these have faded away. Then the fireman sees that the boy is giving up. Exhausted, he is lying down on the ladder, 90 feet from the ground. As a drowning man gathers all his strength for one last wild-cut lunge for survival, the desperate fireman fills his lungs and yells with all his might and fury, Peter! Peter! Get up! Come to me now! Come on! The boy starts, as if awakened from a deep sleep. He squints at the face ahead of him and makes one last painful effort to slide towards the strong arms and the repeated loving assurances of the man whom he trusts more than any other man on earth. He feels himself dragged into those arms as the ladder falls away. I've got you, lad. You're safe now. I've got you, and I will not let you go. Shrugging off all offers of help, the smiling, sobbing fireman carries his only son down the long flights of stairs to the waiting ambulance. The Visit, written by Rosemary Emmett and narrated by Sue Rodwell-Smith. It was a glorious day, and Josie Blake was having the day off from work from her busy job at an out-of-town superstore. Although she loved it, really there were times when she got quite depressed when hearing sad stories from some of her elderly customers and also quite young ones. Then, of course, there were the screaming children whom others seemed profoundly deaf to their cries. The worst ones were those who treated her like dirt and had never heard the word please or thank you. Her favourite customers were friendly, polite and sometimes with a cheeky sense of humour. All in all, just a place to encounter a large cross-section of the public without moving from her seat. This wasn't the career she had planned. She had dreams of being an artist or an actor, but that was before Andrew came on the scene. But today she was glad of this break. 
she was heading to her favourite spot, which was to walk along the beach and then sit on the rocks and just watch the gulls swooping and diving above the waves. There was a brilliant sky reflecting on the water clear and blue. The waves were crashing and splashing on the rocks just below her. Josie loved the sea and rugged coastline. She had moved there with Andrew, her husband of two years, and they were both extremely happy. Soon Josie leaned back against the rocks, the warm sun beating down on her face. She closed her eyes and just listened to the gulls and the waves. Suddenly, there was a big splash and she found herself very wet. Oh, sorry about that, said a woman's voice beside her. I didn't mean to startle you. When Josie looked to see where the voice came from, she was startled to see a mermaid-type person with long, flowing blonde hair. Hi, you're Josie Blake, aren't you? Remember me? I'm Maddie Gray. Still in a state of shock, Josie stammered, Uh, yes, you were fatally injured in a car crash five years ago by that drunk driver. Oh, yes, what punishment did he get in the end? Strangely enough, Josie found herself talking quite easily with this creature from the sea. Oh, as usual, a slap on the wrist and a few months in jail, replied Josie. So how come you finished up like you are now looking like a mermaid? Oh, replied Maddie. I was determined I was going to finish up a pile of dust. There were others at the same time as me who felt the same so. With a few words to the right people, we managed to become characters, animal or sea creatures. And as I always loved swimming, I chose to be a mermaid. Josie now remembered Maddie from her student days. She was always a very popular, friendly girl. It was so tragic what happened to her. Josie still could not believe she was sitting discussing the event. Changing the subject, Maddie said, I guess you must be leading quite an exciting life now. I remember you were very keen to be a fashion designer when we last met. I know, said Josie, but it did not work out that way. There were no openings anywhere, so I'm in a local superstore at present. They both laughed. But I quite enjoy it, Josie added. Speaking of which, I'd better get back and buy something for dinner. All of a sudden, there was a gust of wind and the sun disappeared. Josie shivered and felt very strange. Also, there was no sign of Maddie. In a daze, she got to her feet and made her way to the shop and home. When Andrew arrived home and asked if she'd had a good day, he was alarmed at her story. My darling Josie, I think you should see Dr. Peach very soon. You seem to have a worrying problem. Okay, but I think my problem is quite normal. It's possible I'm pregnant and it can have a strange effect on some people sometimes. Andrew breathed a big sigh of relief, smiled and gave her a big hug. Watford Locks Under the M1 Written and narrated by Felicity Radcliffe. So this is one of my canal poems written whilst on my narrowboat. And it's about a specific place called Watford Locks, which is a flight of locks on the Grand Union Canal located under the M1 near Watford Gap service station. If you've ever driven past Watford Gap, you'll have passed the locks by, probably without noticing them. The contrast between the noise of the M1 above and the serenity of the canals below is quite striking. However, if you don't work the locks correctly, there can be drama, as the poem explains. 
Each verse is structured like a Japanese haiku, which is a form of poetry that I really enjoy writing. Anyway, without further ado, here goes. The poem is called Watford Locks Under the M1. Traffic roars above. Irate motorists hoot horns. Lorries belch rank smoke. Below, all is calm. Narrowboats glide serenely on grey-green water. Flowers at each lock. Tubs of vibrant loveliness. Volunteers tend them. Proud chrysanthemums. Elegant swaying foxgloves. Head-nodding daisies. Boaters work the locks. Some with fluent expertise. Others with less flair. Watford's a staircase. Each lock begets the next one. Learners get flummoxed. Crises do occur when novice boaters ignore the one golden rule. Red then white always open the red paddles first or bad things happen. Side ponds get flooded. Water inundates the scene. Boaters embarrassed. No mishaps today. Volunteers coach beginners who emerge unscathed. Sunlight bathes the scene. A scorcher is predicted later. Now it's cool. We say our goodbyes. The traffic noise recedes. Canal calm descends. What does she want with a man? Was written and is recited by Tina Yates. What does she want with a man? She is noble, majestic, all-powerful as she conquers the earth with each stride. He is puny, so weak, insignificant, so why does she let him astride? Her beauty is bright like a beacon, the gloss on her hair gleams and shines. He is scrawny, bold-skinned, dull to look at, so how can he say of her, mine? She could kill him with one well-placed blow, she's no need to submit to his hands, so why does she welcome his presence? Why does she allow his demands? There's no mystery in his desire for her, wanting mastery just cause he can. But why does she stay? She's no need to. So what wants a horse with a man? Wilting Flower was written and is narrated by Julie Stevens. She picks the flowers as soon as they start to bloom. I tell her they won't last. We put them in water, they light up the room. For one day, maybe two. The stems then droop, the petals rain down, creating a windowsill flower bed, soon a shriveled mess. I'm a wilting flower, losing petals every moment, hurting as I watch them fall. My stem is drooping, searching for some hidden strength. No water will steady me, my tears nourish no part. Will you pick me up too?